Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today we bring you a Q&A session with Dr. Gabor Mate, in which he explains his fundamental understanding of trauma. And today's episode comes to you in conjunction with his new Commune workshop, A Return to Wholeness, available now in the Commune course library. As you may know, in addition to being a podcast, Commune is also a video course platform featuring a wide range of programs from top teachers on personal growth, yoga, meditation, spirituality, functional medicine, nutrition, and social impact. Essentially, everything that you need to be holistically well. Now, Dr. Mate is a renowned addiction expert and physician who guides people toward healing using compassionate inquiry. His most recent book, The Myth of Normal, a groundbreaking investigation into the causes of illness, presents a bracing critique of how our society breeds disease and offers a unique perspective on the relationship between trauma and health. In his in-depth four-part workshop, A Return to Wholeness, Dr. Mate untangles common myths about what makes us sick connecting the dots between the warped values of our culture and the psychological pain they cause and offers a compassionate guide for health and healing. The full workshop contains more than five hours of thought-provoking lessons, including a bonus video interview. If you want to heal your trauma with compassion, take your power back and find peace from past pain, watch Dr. Mate's first session for free at onecommune.com slash heal trauma. On our course platform, you'll also find integrative medicine-based programs with doctors like Sarah Gottfried, Kara Fitzgerald, Mark Hyman, Zach Bush, and Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition. You can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact at onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Wholeness is our original state, and healing is the movement along the spectrum of health away from disease and toward wholeness. Gabor's work gives us agency to move along this healing path. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Gabor Mate. So I find your work uh, and you to be full of intention, mm. and um, that includes the title of your book and the words that you have chosen to be in the title of your book. And uh, as I've uh, had the privilege of excavating the book, the words um, and the definitions of the words have um, undergone a significant upgrade. And I think that upgrade, thanks to your intention and rigorous work, helps to give people a lot of agency mm. um, around these topics 
that we are going to discuss. So to start with normal, um, can you expound a bit upon the societal conditions that we have become to begun to accept uh, as normal? There's an interesting word that has come into currency fairly recently, which is to normalize something. Mm. Well, what has to be normalized? Something that in the first place wasn't normal to start with. And in the modern world, so many things have become normalized, in other words, assumed to be natural and inevitable and perhaps even healthy, that actually are inimical to human health and human development, to human joy, to human advancement. And these normalized concepts and structures very much provide the scaffolding of our current society, of our current culture. So, for example, it's assumed that it's normal for people to be selfish and competitive and aggressive. In fact, it's even posited as those qualities are representing of human nature as such. But if you look at it from the point of view of evolution, we never would have become human beings, nor would even have any possibility of existing had we been individualistic, aggressive, and selfish. In fact, the norm was to live communally. I'm talking about for millions of years that hominins or you know prehumans existed, and the very hominid creatures, such as our own species, have been on for multiple hundreds of thousands of years. All throughout that time, um, aggressive, selfish individualism would have meant the absolute impossibility of survival. So what was norm is communal living, communal raising of children, communal setting of intention, Mm -hmm. communal ways of finding sustenance. In our society, we've normalized the opposite. So what is the norm in our society is completely abnormal from the perspective of human evolution and human needs. In another sense, people who suffer physical or mental illness are considered abnormal. They have some abnormality. But actually, if we look at it scientifically, those illnesses, whether of mind or body, are very often, not always, but most often, normal responses to what are abnormal circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a woman with severe symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder has doubled the risk of ovarian cancer. But her PTSD symptoms are normal responses to traumatic circumstances. Hmm. A study just this week that showed that in in the aftermath of an episode of racism, a person's immune system and hormonal apparatus undergoes immediate negative changes, which can lead lead to disease, and in fact, it does. Hmm. But those are normal responses to what, from any human perspective, is an abnormal stress. So what I'm saying in short is that we have normalized circumstances and attitudes that are thoroughly abnormal when it comes to 
human nature and human needs and human evolution. Mm. Yeah, I will resist the urge to engage with you around this whole notion of survival of the fittest yeah. and how we've understood the word fittest. Yeah. Um, but as you've just uh, described, we seem to have this delusion that fittest is somehow competition. Mm -hmm. But as you say, it is actually our ability to cooperate flexibly at scale. Yeah. So let's um, probe the topic of trauma yeah. more specifically. Um, now, in, in the book, um, you delineate between trauma and the trauma-inducing event. Mm -hmm. Can you untangle that a little bit? Sure. So as a former English teacher, I pay a lot of attention to the meanings of words and the origins of words. And um, trauma itself is a Greek word for wound or wounding. So in this case, a psychic wound. Mm -hmm. So the trauma, in other words, is not the event that induced the wound, but the wound itself. So I do go into some of my own history in the book and, you know, as a Jewish infant, spending my first year under Nazi occupation in, in Budapest, Hungary, there were lots of traumatic events in my life. But those events were not the trauma. The trauma is the wound that I sustained in terms of anxiety, you know, uh, in terms of a view of the world that was rather morose and negative, uh, in terms of the belief that I wasn't wanted or loved, and then the adaptations that I make to those beliefs to make life livable. So trauma is not what happened, which is a good thing. Yeah. Because if the trauma is what happened, then there's nothing you can do about it. There, there never not will have been a Second World War. There never not will have been genocide. There never not will have been the death of my grandparents in Auschwitz and the near demise of myself and my mother and father. That'll never not have been. So if that was the trauma, well, one is doomed. But if the trauma is the wound that one sustains, the psychic wound that one sustains internally, that can be healed any time. So it's very important to make that distinction. The trauma is not the event. The trauma is what happens inside you as a result of the event. Hmm. And specifically, um, when you talk about wound, yeah. the root of the word trauma, yeah. um, you can make a comparison between a psychological wound and uh, let's say a physiological wound, like you get a cut, you know, when you're yeah. a little careless in the kitchen or something like that. That's right. But it's a helpful uh, analogy when we talk a bit about how that wound can and may heal. Sure. Can you pull on that thread? Sure. So if you look at uh, the metaphor, the analogy of a physical wound, uh, first of all, as long as it's open and unhealed, it's very raw and sensitive and painful. So. You know, the example I often give is I, I get yourself to tap yourself on the shoulder and, and, you know, it doesn't hurt at all. But if you imagine that there's a raw wound there, there's no clothing, the, the skin is bare, and let's say there's a burn there so that the top layers of the skin are burnt off so that the nerve endings are close to the surface 
And in, interestingly enough, we have a word for that. We call those people thin-skinned. Yeah. Yeah. The, the nerve endings are very close to the surface. You touch them on that wound, it just hurts. Now this happens in people's lives that they're touched on their wound, their psychic wound, and they react like they've just been assaulted. But in fact, the touch may have been very light. Mm. It's the wound that's very raw. And so that this is where we talk about people getting triggered, which mm. I could talk about the metaphor of the trigger as well. <laughs> so that's one characteristic of a wound, that it's raw and it's painful and it's highly sensitive and one is very reactive when the wound is touched. Now the other aspect of a wound, and both of these apply to psychic trauma, is the scar tissue that forms over it. Now scar tissue protects us, protects the wound, it binds the flesh together, but it's got certain characteristics. It's insensitive because it doesn't have nerve endings in it. So one of the aspects of trauma is we disconnect from our feelings. Hmm. It's not flexible. It's rigid, so that our responses become inflexible and rigid. We lose what is called response flexibility. Mm. So we respond in, the more traumatized we are, the more rigidly and the more predictively we react in certain inflexible ways. And we can't even think outside those boundaries. Um, scar tissue also doesn't grow in a healthy way so that people who are severely traumatized, or to the degree that they're traumatized, they have difficulty growing emotionally. So very often when you say to a, an adult or somebody says to you, don't be such a baby. It's not necessarily a pejorative. It's a description of how you're still reacting as if you hadn't grown emotionally. And I know that personally, I mean, I. In my 70s, I'm quite capable of reacting like a baby, and, and, and I'm not being critical of myself. I'm just saying that in those areas where you haven't grown emotionally or when temporarily you've lost contact with the more mature circuits of your brain, you're going to react like a baby mm-hmm. or like a toddler, which means you haven't, at that moment, the growth that you've done has, doesn't show up. So these are then the characteristics of a, of a wound, whether you look at it from the point of view of a raw sore or from the point of view of uh, scar tissue. Hmm. There's a chapter in the book um, where you talk a little bit about um, your dialogue with Eve Ensler, or known as V. Yeah. And um, I found it very illuminating around the nature of illness and mm-hmm. disease. That's mm-hmm. another word in the title, so I bring mm-hmm. it up. And uh, we'll spend some time hopefully connecting trauma and, and illness or disease. But um, in this particular chapter, you go to some great length to explain the nature of disease mm-hmm. as something very different mm-hmm. than what modern Western allopathic medicine has pegged it as yeah. as some thing that you have. Yeah. Can you uh, unwind your definition of disease? This is one of those serendipitous um, insights that came to me as I was writing the book. You yeah. know, which is, book writing is interesting because you, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're constantly, your, your mind is already 
or constantly unfolding and exploring new subjects that you never thought you'd um, touch upon when you first started writing the book. But at some point, something became very clear to me that as a physician, I had this idea of disease that was very static and very undynamic. And it shows up in how we use language. So we say, I have multiple sclerosis, or I have ADHD, or I have cancer. Well, that language implies something. It implies that there's this thing called ADHD. There's this mm-hmm. thing called multiple sclerosis. There's this thing called cancer, which has got a nature of its own and is independent of the person who has it. So I have this book or I have this cup. It's a thing. I can pick it up, I can put it down, I can use it, I cannot use it, I can give it away, keep it. When somebody's diagnosed with, say, multiple sclerosis or any illness, they're told by the physicians, here's your disease, this is this thing, it's got, this is what it does, this is what the prognosis is, this is what its course is gonna look like. That's assuming that the disease has got a life of its own and it's a thing apart from the person in whom the disease show up. Now in my conversation with V, what occurred to both of us is that that's not the nature of illness. Mm. It's actually a process. Mm. That process unfolds in a particular individual. Illness doesn't interrupt your life, it manifests your life. And there's all kinds of scientific evidence to show how illness is actually, is not something that shows up all of a sudden, it's a long-term process, very much connected to what happened to you even prenatally, and birth, and childhood. And that the identifiable symptoms by the time the diagnosis arrives are only the more explicit manifestations of a long-term process mm-hmm. that really has to do with what's happened to you in your life and what dynamics have animated, how you, how you relate to yourself and, and to your life. It's not a theoretical distinction. It's a practical one. Because if disease is a process that manifests your life, it also means that if you gain agency over your life, you can affect the process. Yes. And there are so many documented examples, including people that I've talked to in the book, who they change the process of their life. Their disease naturally changes because the disease is not a thing with a life of its own. And we all know of these people who have been given terminal diagnosis and 30 years later they're still alive. Well, those are, I'm not saying those examples are common, but the very fact that they exist tells us that this idea of disease is a thing is a, is a mm, fantasy. Mm. You take somebody like the physicist Stephen Hawking, who was diagnosed with ALS, this thing called ALS, and he was told you got two years to live at age 20. And 55 years later or so, he died as the world's most well-known physicist, having made incredible contributions to our understanding of the universe. So clearly there's a process going on there that medical practice doesn't recognize. I should also say here, that I have to make a distinction between medical practice and medical science, because science has shown the process yes. and how it works. Medical practice doesn't recognize it. It's a strange dichotomy.
Yeah, it's almost taken a hundred years now since quantum mechanics and particle physics and all of this science that essentially pointed to the notion that the world is not fixed. Right. That it is not a thing that is unchangeable. That's right. But it is dancing and in vibratory interrelationship with itself. And of course, this is um, speaks to our mutual interest in, in Buddhism and notions of dependent origination and life as an interconnected web or spontaneously emergent as in the Taoist tradition. Um, but here we are now a hundred years later from some of the greatest discoveries of the early 20th century, just now on the cusp of putting our thumb on um, on all of these fields of emerging study like epigenetics and neuroplasticity and the microbiome yeah. that constantly yeah. show us yeah. that life is process yeah. that we are that every interaction between an organism and its environment can be adaptive or maladaptive that's right and yes we've heard of some of the more um like sensational recoveries, like our friend Anita Morjani, who had a near-death experience and then all of a sudden went into remission from a very stage four, what we dub it, cancer. Um, But this doesn't have to be that extreme that anyone along any part of their journey can recognize that they're in process and adopt certain kinds of protocols and behaviors and self-work that can be adaptive to that process. Well, Anita's, Anita's book, the title is very telling, isn't it? Dying to be me. Yeah. And literally what she says is that she had to nearly die to become truly herself because she discovered as a result of this direct near-death experience, she had sort of this flash of illumination that she had never been herself all her life Mm. because in order to fit in with her family and the cultural expectations uh, she had to give up her sense of herself so Mm. she literally had to die almost to become herself now that's my general observation of chronic illness is that virtually not not everybody but virtually everybody with chronic illness I say not not everybody because there are some diseases that are significantly or almost 100% genetically determined. Right. One that runs in my family is muscular dystrophy. If you have it, you'll have the disease, yeah. regardless right. of what kind of personality you have. Yeah, sickle cell. Yeah, yeah. but both those are rare, Yeah, very rare in a population. So in most chronic illness, uh, in my work as a family physician and palliative care physician, and later on in addiction medicine, um, I did notice that the people prone to chronic illness are people that at some point in life, for no fault of their own, had to disconnect from themselves as the impact of traumatic influences. Mm-hmm. That and then scar the, tissue built and up. The scar, yeah, and, and then, then, the, then the disease comes along and very often acts as a wake-up call. And what people often discover is the path back to themselves under the you might say, compulsion of the illness. And so in that sense, no, I don't recommend that way of learning. And and one of the reasons I write the book is so that we can learn these lessons before our body forces us into the kind of illumination that Anita had had to experience. Mm -hmm. But 
much short of those dramatic and, 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 and life-threatening uh, conditions, people can pay attention to their bodies and, and, and learn what the bodies are trying to tell them and draw the right conclusions. And it's always about, mm, you're not being yourself here. Mm. You know, it sounds simplistic, but um, I've got decades of experience and observation behind it, not to mention multiple studies that, that, that tend in the same direction. And uh, again, what's remarkable is the degree to which medical practice almost militantly ignores all that evidence. Yeah. So if illness and disease exist on a spectrum, yeah. what is healing? By the way, that spectrum is another reason not to be so mm, arrogant about calling some people normal and other abnormal, because as far as I can see, we're all on we're the spectrum. We're all on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so if the essence of trauma is a disconnection from ourselves, which it is, a disconnection from aspects of ourselves, then healing, again, to look at word origins, is, comes from an Anglo-Saxon or German Anglo-Saxon word for wholeness. So if trauma is disconnection and disease is the physiological manifestations of disconnection, then healing is becoming whole again. Which means, or I shouldn't say becoming whole again, more accurately probably recognizing our wholeness. Mm. You know? um, in, addiction, in addiction, there's an interesting phrase, uh, recovery. And again, if you look at word meanings, recovery means to find again. Mm. They ask anybody who's recovered, what did you find? to say, I found myself, yeah. which means that that whole self was never lost. It just got obscured and lost to our awareness. So whole, wholeness and healing is the recovery of the awareness of our wholeness. And in that sense, wholeness doesn't always mean cure. Right. Some people discover wholeness and they're very grateful for it but their illness is too far advanced for them to be cured. And this is where, it, this is, and I'm not recommending this to anybody, but I've often had the experience, especially working in palliative care, that someone would say to me, you know, doc, um, this illness that's about to take my life is the best thing that ever happened to me. And you wonder why would anybody say that? But what they meant by it, it helped them to discover themselves, which they, considered to be more precious than anything else, even the continuation of life itself. Now again, I don't advocate for it, I don't recommend it, but I'm just telling you that I've had, I've made that observation many times. Yeah. I think Dostoevsky wrote, are we worthy of our suffering? Hmm. And, um, of course, when Viktor Frankl wrote his book, he outlined th three different places in which man can find meaning, mm. I should say, humankind can find meaning mm. in work, 
in our connection, in our relationships, and in our suffering. Mm. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you, kind of along those lines, um, something personal about the nature of healing. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I know that you lost your grandparents in the Holocaust. Um, and I believe, I read in the book, well, that you had uh, an opportunity to um, connect or commiserate with um, one of the descendants of Goering. Bettina Goering, who was yeah. the uh, grandniece of Hermann, Reich Marshal Hermann Goering, the head of the Luftwaffe and one of the most monstrous representatives of the Nazi regime. Yeah. And I know that you also tell the story about um, Edith Egger, a psychologist, yeah. um, who I believe returns to the place of residence of Hitler yeah. and, um, and forgives Hitler. Yeah. I want to ask you, what role does forgiveness play within the process of healing? And where are you? within that process of forgiveness? Hmm. <laughs> well, I tell you, <laughs> it's been quite, uh, quite a journey because uh, no more than four or five years ago at the most, probably four years ago, I was part of a group getting ketamine training, you know? And we were injected with the substance, 12 of us, and each of us had a minder as we lay there on the mat, and the ketamine took me wherever it took me. And in the middle of it, I just screamed out, out loud, I hate the world, you know, <laughs> not much forgiveness there, you know, <laughs> right. but it was clearly this deep resentment mm. in me. Um, and my default setting much of my life was to wake up in the morning and resent the world, which is clearly, it's clear where that came from, you know, how could I have felt otherwise as an infant, you know? Conscious forgiveness in the sense that Edith Egger performed it, of going to Berghof in the Bavarian Alps and forgiving Hitler, by which she meant not that it's okay what he did, right. but that she releases the resentment for the past that she carries inside her, because she doesn't want that to constrict her experience of, of, of being alive in this world and, and her experience of fully enjoying this life that she worked so hard to create for herself. So it's letting go of that resentment. That hasn't come easy to me, but it, it, it has come, and it is coming. And I actually think that forgiveness has to do with the more you realize that you're okay, the more you realize that what happened then doesn't have to define your present and your future, which is really the healing of trauma. Well, if you're not wounded anymore, if the wound is healed, then there's nothing to forgive. So forgiveness, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. so forgiveness for me isn't like it was for Edith, a conscious act. Maybe at some point it will be. For me, it's more about the release of that resentment that one holds because of the pain that one still has over what happened a long time ago. So I think forgiveness for me is very much connected to healing and, and just letting go. Mm. Yeah. I've heard you say, and I've read this as well, is that everyone 
is dealing with some aspect of trauma. Mm-hmm. We are all somewhere on this spectrum and that we can be listing towards healing or listing potentially towards illness and disease. If you were to be able to give a message to people to empower them, to give them agency, to every day wake up and move towards healing and away from disease, what would that message look like? Just to change the language a bit, I cannot give anybody agency (laughs) by definition. True. Okay. I can help them wake up to the potential of agency within themselves. And what I would say to people is that every instance of perceived helplessness and lack of agency on your part, um, every moment of being carried away by emotions as if a flood had just carried you away, every instance when something is a bit off and you notice that it is, rather than dismissing it or judging yourself for it, you got curious about it. Huh, why did I react that way? Not why did I react that way, which is a judgment. But hmm, I wonder why I did react that way. I wonder, why did I feel helpless? I'm actually an adult human being. I'm not an infant anymore. So the sense of helplessness that I have. When I have an opinion that I'm afraid to express because I don't, I'm afraid people won't like me. Even when a medical doctor, an expert tells me something, that doesn't feel right to me, or that I have some questions about, but I don't utter my questions, or I don't state my objection. What is holding me back? That's the pathway towards agency. So to me, the pathway towards agency lies through this compassionate curiosity about one's responses and reactions to the world and one's one's emotions. Just be curious about everything. And that promotes agency in two ways, because first of all, the answers will begin to emerge. But secondly, you'll begin to notice who's the one asking the questions. Well, that's to you that you don't even know existed. Mm. So to me, the path to agency lies through curiosity. Mm. Can you elaborate a little bit on the scale of the societal problem as it relates to mental illness, depression, and addiction? Yeah. Well, um, three weeks ahead of this conversation in the New York Times, um, there's a front page headline about the teenager who was on 10 different psychiatric medications. (laughs) 10. Which is a trend in the United States. And literally millions of kids are being medicated for all kinds of conditions, including them being medicated with antipsychotics, not for psychotics, but to con- not, not for psychosis, <laughs> but to control their behavior. This, in, despite evidence that even in adults, those antipsychotics can have negative effects on the brain. So it's an uncontrolled experiment in fiddling with children's brains. And the number of children being diagnosed with ADHD and anxiety and depression is going up. Anguished articles in the New Yorker and the New York Times within the last few months about the rising tide of childhood suicides. Yeah. As far as addiction is concerned, um, 
last year there were more than 100,000 overdose deaths in the United States. I mean, uh, more people died in one year of overdoses, double the, double the number that died in uh, the Vietnam, Afghan and Iraq wars put together. This is in one year. Mm. So one can hardly overstate the scale of the crisis. The problem is, People are not looking at the systemic causes. Psychiatry still focuses on the biology of the brain as being the culprit, not recognizing that the biology of the brain actually reflects an interaction with the environment. So that whether it's adults or children, it's, we got to look at the systemic causes that are driving people in those directions. And we're not doing that. Yeah, there's a proclivity just to prescribe or over-administer yeah. like an SSRI. Yeah. It's just like, okay, well, we've done some analyses and it looks like the biochemistry of the brain needs to needs more serotonin or whatever. Well, and, you know, as someone, as, as someone who's taken SSRI and has benefited from it, yeah. I'm not going to argue wholeheartedly against, or wholesale against the, the judicious use of medications. But I can, tell, I can also tell you that the theory of lack of serotonin causing depression is complete bunk. There isn't any evidence for it. And so, yeah, I, I benefited for a while from my SSRI, but it's the same as if, you know, if you go to a party and you're kind of socially shy and, and, and you have a drink and all of a sudden you become the life of the party, that, does that prove that your social anxiety was caused by a lack of bourbon in your brain, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so we can, you can't argue from the, yeah. the yeah. potential benefit of medications to causation. Hmm. There's no correlation whatsoever. Yeah. What does a trauma-informed society look like? Well, from my perspective, from the, the closest mm, discipline, you know, for me, of course, is medicine. And the average medical student to this day, the average, medical student to this day does not receive a single lecture on psychic trauma and its multiple physiological and and mental consequences so they're like they're working blind it's, it's astonishing this is despite multiple decades of research and literally tens of thousands of papers so a trauma-informed medical system would indicate that when a person comes in for say multiple sclerosis or depression or ADHD They'd be offered the appropriate treatment, whatever that may happen to be. But then a conversation would also ensue about what in your life may have led, what is the process in your life that may have led to this particular symptom or this particular constellation of symptoms that we call a disease. And the correlation between, say, addiction or ADHD or multiple sclerosis, for that matter, and trauma and stress could not have been more definitely established than it already has been in, in scientific research. And yet the average person who goes to a physician with any of these conditions is never asked about trauma, nor are they help to uh, heal the trauma. So that's medicine. The legal profession, oh my God. More, uh, the law, most people in our jails are traumatized people. Yeah. And, and that's not even controversial. And yet, the jails punish the manifestations of trauma. 
without really having, you know, they call it a correctional system, but nothing gets corrected for most people. The way people are treated, the solitary confinement, the harsh conditions, the punishments, the lack of decent nutrition, you know, they're all designed almost to exacerbate rather than to heal the trauma. So a trauma-informed correctional system would actually help people correct their, their life course. And where it's done, it's very effective. This, is, this isn't theory. It's po in pockets, it's done here or there, but it's generally not done in the system. And the average lawyer and judge and prosecutor understands nothing about trauma. They don't even know the concept for the most part. Yeah. A trauma-informed educational system, boy oh boy. If, 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 if teachers were trained in human development, in child development and brain development, and if they understood that these dysfunctional childhood behaviors and learning difficulties are very often the outcomes of trauma, what a different educational system we could have. What if the educational system was designed to promote healthy emotional and brain development rather than strictly the inculcation of a certain curriculum? If a political social system understood the implications of trauma and did its best to avoid or correct them, the possibility for a humane society would be infinite. Mm -hmm. So it sounds as if across our judicial system, our medical system, our politics, the way that we build our economy, mm -hmm. that we need a wholesale reimagination of our systems and structures from a vantage point of upstream, but also through the lens of compassion. And this is something that you touch deeply on in the book is the, is the topic of compassion. Well, uh, one of my teachers, A.H. Almas, says that only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. I mean, people are so scared and they're so agitated and they're so divided and they're so mm, hostile sometimes and so isolated that f for them to wake up to the truth, there needs to be a lot of compassion around that we offer one another and especially to those that we don't agree with. Hmm. Um, yeah, so if there was compassion all around, and, and of course the interesting thing is, compassion is not only not strange to human nature, but is the very essence of it. Yeah. I mean, when do you feel better? When does anybody feel better? When they grasp something aggressively and competitively and selfishly? I mean, even look at this grasping movement. It's a tension, it's a constriction, isn't it? As opposed to giving, you know? Yeah. Which is immediately expansive. When do you feel better? Physiologically, yeah. you know? In other words, that's our nature. Yeah, giving is self-care. Yeah, in that sense, yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to my Q&A with Dr. Gabor Mate. Be sure to check out his latest book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. And if you want to recognize where you are wounded and liberate yourself from addictive behaviors and patterns, then get Dr. Mate's free introductory workshop at onecommune.com slash heal trauma. 
If you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, and you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with suggestions or criticism of the constructive variety, please, at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, but not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you. Thank you.